Welcome to Traverse, a Huckberry podcast with myself, Chris Burkhardt, and Charles Post. Our guest today is none other than Mike Rowe, best known as the longtime host of Dirty Jobs and the narrator of The Deadliest Catch. He's an author and a podcaster who's deeply interested in America's relationship with work and how we value that work. In 2008, he founded the Mike Rowe Works as a way to highlight job opportunities in trades. That foundation gives hundreds of grants each year to skilled workers. I can see why he's been named multiple times to Forbes' list of most trustworthy celebrities. Today, we talk about the power of finishing, work as a muscle, and why you may need to find a different toolbox. I'm Chris Burkhard. And I'm Charles Post. Let's jump on in. Mr. Mike Rowe, dude, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And um, as somebody who might even call himself a super fan, I uh, mm. I was pleasantly surprised to find out that you are an Eagle Scout, which I am as well. And um, just wanted to say a huge congrats on that, as well as you know helping to speak to you know the BSA and and advocate for them. And just it's such a such an amazing institution. And I just um, Felt like it changed my life as a young kid, um, being a Boy Scout, and not to jump right into the deep end here with the the vulnerability. But I but I grew up without a dad in my life, and so Boy Scouts of America was like such a pivotal and critical thing to kind of learn some of those um, crucial skills that I just I kind of were lost on me, and so I just wanted to give you a big pat on the back for that. And uh, it's really rad. It's really cool to see your work in that space. You know, I for me, I. I think the country still needs the Boy Scouts. I think the country needs Skills USA, the Future Farmers of America. Those um, those organizations are the uh, are the grout. You know, they're the connective tissue to my way of thinking. And and I don't know about your experience, Chris, but for me, you know, scouting is a lot is a lot like college. You know, it <laughs> it it matters. Uh, it matters a lot who your teacher is. It matters a lot so who the scoutmaster is. It matters a lot what troop you're in as opposed to the overall movement. You know, I mean, for me, Troop 16, my first scoutmaster was a retired lieutenant colonel from the oh Army. <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm not oh kidding you. And, and he ran it like a platoon. You know, I mean, squads and patrols and reveille and taps and formations. We had a boxing ring in the basement <laughs> of Kenwood United Presbyterian Church where young men uh, at odds could settle their differences like grownups. You no know, way. We had. Is that I, still I'm, happening I'm these days? <laughs> no, man. No, that's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. it's you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a huge fan of the organization, and I still really, really believe the importance of doing things like, like making a promise, taking a pledge, taking a vow. You know, that, that stuff is still for sale. It still matters. But, hey, your experience may vary. Yeah, and you know, wow. you, you just you just nailed it on the top of the head. The the thing I always tell my wife and I always tell my boys, because you know where I live, my troop it's kind of disintegrated and it's not what it was. And so obviously, I've taken it upon myself to really um, to provide a lot of that teaching and those skill sets. But the the main thing that I after years of thinking about it, I'm like, okay, it wasn't, you know, underwater basket weaving or, you know, <laughs> whatever. It wasn't any of the merit badges because my memory just, you know, one week it was there and one week it was gone. It was learning how to start something and finish it. And that, no kidding, man. that's the skill that I feel like I, I owe everything to is the fact that if I start it, I'm finishing it no matter how tedious or painful or or arbitrary it might have seemed it, it's it's a lost trait in in the world especially in America these days that I I feel like the youth are really they really suffer from and so that's something that I've tried to to urge the next generation to really If I could be it. so so bold Chris I would say first of all couldn't agree more but I don't think completing a thing is a skill I think it's a choice yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think like all other choices, uh, underneath it is a muscle, 
And when, when you choose to exercise the business of completing a task, you start to build a very specific muscle. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, too, because when you, when you frame things in terms of a skill, well, then you're suddenly adjacent to a talent. And if you start talking mm-hmm. about talent, then you're starting to talk about a gift. And if you're talking about a gift, right, you're, start, you're starting to talk about a thing that you were given. Work ethic is a choice. Anybody can choose to start and finish a thing. And you're right. Scouting was that on steroids for me. Your advocacy work for, for hard work and that, that, you know, again, it's not always just about working smarter. It's about actually learning to enjoy that. Like there's so many things I want to dive into how you found a way to kind of represent a group of people who, you know, like myself, come from a blue, blue collar family. My family's still very blue collar. You, you, you celebrated kind of the, um, the average everyday American that, that I feel like for a very long time was kind of looked down upon. And, and I, um, it makes me, uh, really grateful to see the work that you've done and still do advocating for them. Because I know in my household, you know, my dad being a tradesman, being a landscaper, um, still to this day, pushing lawnmowers, this and that, you know, putting my, you know, putting food on the table with that job and, realizing that like there was nobody out there celebrating those careers, those jobs until, you know, dirty jobs came along. And I think that that obviously I realized now it wasn't just like a role that you played. This is something that you embodied and still embody today. And Mike, what I would say too, I'm 34 years old. So high school coming home, walking upstairs into the den where my dad would be hearing your voice coming to the television and whether it was <laughs> deadliest catch or dirty jobs. I mean, th- those were things th- those were like my window into our country, right? I grew up in California in the Bay area, which is a little Island in this vast diverse fabric of people. And yes, the Bay area is diverse, but it is apples to oranges to the Midwest or to the deep South. And yeah. you were, yeah. A, a way for us to travel and a way for us to meet new people. And I think one of the things that that you really uh, you know highlighted for me while I wasn't in the Boy Scouts, I grew up fishing. And you brought these heroes to life and you brought their work to life in a way that made me feel proud to have my fishing rod and to get on a boat and 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 look up to these people, these boat captains and these people who did the hard work but weren't the types that came to bring your parents to school day. You know, it wasn't the dream job, but it was it was highlighting and celebrating these people who were doing so much and didn't deserve, you know, didn't receive the, the applause or the the spotlight, but you did that. And so as a young kid, I don't think I knew that like being a boat a fishing boat captain wasn't a cool, you know, that wasn't like the dream job everybody was, right. you know, thinking about. But you planted that seed in the backs of our, the back of our minds, and I think you've in, in, influenced a generation for sure. Well, look, that's some high cotton. Thank you. I would love to tell you the story of of how I sat down and uh, imagined a plan that would lead me and allow me to do that very thing, and then I would love to just pat myself on the back as we discuss how beautifully I executed that well thought out strategy, but. Of course, that's not what happened. You know, it's a it's a crooked road. Reality TV didn't exist when I sold Dirty Jobs to Discovery. Nobody understood what it was, including me. And um, you know, the great privilege of uh, of my life and to be able to to work on the shows that you've described as as well as run a foundation that's simpatico with those programs and the themes of those programs. And really a lot of the DNA from the Boy Scouts of America circa 1977, you know, back when I was in. That stuff, that stuff is is important and interesting in my world because I started to to do it and then I watched the headlines catch up to me and that's what happened with dirty jobs. That's why for 20 years, Charles, you'd stumble into your den and go, you know what? I think this asshole might be doing something other than crawling through a river of crap. You know, I think maybe, you know, it wasn't me trying to teach you something. It was all of a sudden uh, reality TV became a thing. All of a sudden work 
our relationship with work, our relationship with our food, where it came from, our energy, where it came from, all these things became headline news. So too did the definition of a, of a good job and a good education. And suddenly, you know, because of where I was, I, I, I got permission to talk pointedly about all of that stuff. But uh, it wasn't a plan. It was a lot of good luck and a lot of hard work. Do you, do you feel like you carried a, a burden, a weight, as you sort of became maybe at a point like a spokesperson for that, that part of America and that part of, I think, blue-collar workers and just, just as, I guess, their, you know, their uh, elected representative in some way? And, and again, I'm sure that wasn't the intention, but was that a, was that a, a weight that you carried as, as that kind of um, went on? It, it was a consideration that I became both aware of and then hyper aware of. I mean, you don't go to Congress and testify in front of both houses without realizing that, you know, somebody has has bestowed upon you the imprimatur, right? Somebody has given you permission to do that. So I was I was mindful of it. I think I was more mindful, honestly, Chris, of the uh, cognitive dissonance that came with it because you know, I, I didn't set out to launch Dirty Jobs and Deadliest Catch. I didn't set out to like put my mark on reality TV. And I certainly didn't set out to become any kind of spokesperson for something, you know, some, some larger movement. In fact, you know, the thing, <laughs> and again, I, I, I wouldn't use the word burden because it sounds like poor me. And believe me, there's nothing, there's nothing to pity about me. But, you know, the truth of my life is I spent 20 years in the entertainment business before Dirty Jobs hit. I sang in the Baltimore Opera. I, 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 I performed off-Broadway. I, I sang, I, I sold stuff in the middle of the night on the QVC cable shopping channel and did a long <laughs> list of things that are, are completely antithetical to the guy you know from Dirty Jobs. So the closest thing I have to a burden is the responsibility to explain to people that, look, just because you've seen me doing a lot of working things doesn't mean I can build your house, okay? <laughs> it, it doesn't, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm an apprentice. I'm a full-time right. perpetual apprentice. And I'm never the guy who, in the shot who, who knows best about how to finish the thing. I'm an avatar. I'm a I'm a better guest than a host, and I'm certainly not an expert. Mike, I was watching a video from QVC, maybe 1992, and you're selling lava lamps. It's like three in the morning, and I was blown away by not only your ability to just riff on this inanimate object sitting there with the blobs just like you know orbing in the corner, but also like pull some science into it and some charm into it. And I don't know if you have an, you know, an earpiece in with a producer feeding you, you know, information, but it was, I was like, this, this guy could, was, you know, selling me a lava lamp three in the morning. I want to buy it. How did that get you to, <laughs> to the next thing? That's a pretty crooked road. You know, I mean, it, it, it started with, I mean, it really starts with me trying to follow in my granddad's footsteps, my neighbor, Carl Noble, who could build a house without a blueprint, and who I worked for as an apprentice at, as a teenager. And he was the guy who showed me that, you know, just because you just because you love something doesn't mean you can't suck at it. Mm. And and mm. and the handy gene is that. recessive, right? It, it's <laughs> it, it you 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 think you get it, but you actually don't. So uh, Carl Noble was the guy who said, Mike, you can be a tradesman if you want. Just um just get a different toolbox. So that toolbox led me to a community college and led me to study acting and writing and singing and philosophy and English and a whole lot of other things that I wasn't really interested in, but turned out I had a certain facility for. I got into the opera. Uh, somewhere in there was a scoutmaster, by the way, who cured me of my stutter, taught me how to memorize all sorts of things and got me out of my shell. But be that as it may, Way leads on to Way, and and one day during a production of Deringus Nibelungen at the Lyric Opera House in Baltimore, Maryland, I walked across the street dressed as a Viking to get a beer and watch the uh, the football <laughs> game during intermission. 
And while I sat there, I, I looked up and I saw a big guy in a shiny suit selling pots and pans where I'd expected to see the football game. And uh, QVC, the bartender was watching QVC because he was auditioning for that guy's job. They were, they were in Baltimore doing an open cattle call. And wow. I, I sat there, literally dressed as a Viking, drinking a beer, arguing with the bartender to please put on the football game. But the more <laughs> I watched the fat guy in the shiny suit sell these pots and pans, the more I thought, well, you know, I wonder what they pay that guy. I, I think maybe I could do that. So uh, long story short, Charles, I, I, I went with the bartender the next morning down to the uh, Marriott Harbor Court Hotel, and I auditioned. I walked into a, uh, a conference room, and a man sitting next to a video camera uh, asked me to sit down, and he uh, took a pencil from behind his ear, and he rolled it across the table, and he said, um, I'm going to turn the camera on in a second, and when I do, I want you to pick up that pencil, and I want you to make me want that pencil. I want you to talk about that pencil until I tell you to stop. Do not stop. <laughs> until I tell you to stop and make me want the pencil. Wow. So he turns on the, uh, the camera, the red light pops on, and I start talking, not knowing that in those days, that's literally the entire process. It, the, if, if you can talk about a pencil for eight minutes, you were given wow. a three-month probationary contract, and then you were, you were allowed to show up really unsupervised in the middle of the night <laughs> to sit on a, on a set and try and make sense out of an endless litany of products that you're not wow. even sure are real. You know what I mean? Like, the, <laughs> like, like that there's more that, than one of them available. <laughs> it, it looked like the stuff that the claw on a, on a carnival midway would, would pick up out of that box full of mm. junk, right? Like, it's like the Amcor negative ion generator and the health team <laughs> infrared pain reliever and a freaking lava lamp, right? Like, it, it, it could be anything. And so that's how it happened. I talked about a pencil for eight minutes, and then I showed up for 90 days in the middle of the night to develop another tool in my toolbox. And then they gave me a real contract, and I stayed for three years. I was going to say, what, what was the mindset? Like you had this, this, you know, this job performing already and you just go across the street and you're already looking for a new job. Like, you know. Oh, well, the, the mindset was in, in 1984, I, I got out of school and I freelanced for six years in the Baltimore, D.C., New York corridor doing you know, probably 200 weird, different, terrible jobs you didn't want to do in the entertainment business. But, but the steady gig was the opera. You know, there was always an opera in production. And so I always could go there and, and dress up like a Viking or a pirate and sing real loud and meet fun girls and <laughs> drink beer during the intermission and have a, have a great time. Um, and so by 1989, 1990, I started to want what you guys would probably recognize as what they call a uh, a paycheck, right? Like a steady, <laughs> like I, I, I wanted money because um, I never had any before. And I just thought, well, you know, if QVC will, will pay me, you know, I think they were paying 50 grand a year plus another 50 in bonus or maybe more if, if people liked you. But a lot of money back in 1989, for a kid who never had any. So so I was all about the money. I, I took that job and and realized that, you know, I was probably going to get fired. They never should have hired me, honestly. I made what <laughs> what you didn't tell them, Charles, about that lava lamp is that I opened the damn thing up on the air just to pour it out to see what was the, inside. What? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, the clip I saw yeah. ended before no. you got to that that part. Oh yeah, no, I opened it up, burned the hell out of my leg you know, pissed off the vendor. I was fired three times from QVC over the course of three years. They always hired me back, but I spent all my time there on like double secret probation in the middle of the night, um, just trying to make sense of whatever tchotchke they brought me. In hindsight, it's the best training I ever had. More after the break. Stay with us. 
I want to just back up a little bit to what you mentioned before about you know this reality TV. People don't realize that like Deadliest Catch was essentially the very first foray we had into reality TV, besides what was happening at MTV at the time. But this was our our first look at like real lives happening in in real time, and I actually. Uh, as a photographer, was incredibly inspired by what I saw in Deadliest Catch so much so that I went to the Aleutian Islands. Like I've been there four times. Um, you were there early days. I mean, in terms of in terms of bringing exposure to it, you know, obviously the show is based out of Dutch Harbor. For those that you know don't know, it's a you know tiny you know island, basically right off the coast of Alaska between Russia and it's it is it's the Wild West. It's it's a rough place and I'd love to have you you just give us kind of like the lay of the land as to what that was like because I think I think most people maybe don't realize that you you were actually slated to to be in the deadliest catch as a host and then you kind of had to make that decision between that and dirty jobs but um but they they shot a, a few episodes with you there and I know we you shot a, a whole season yeah, yeah. And, you, and I know you had a big role in that. And that location, I mean, it's wild. The illusions are not a place to be trifled with. It's, it's very real. It's very raw. Every time I'm there, I, I have an immense respect for anybody that goes out on the ocean there. And I just, I guess I just want to get like, where was your head at? You're on these boats. It truly is dangerous. It's, a, it's the real deal. Um, yeah, what was that like? Paint a picture. Well, it was the part of the map in the old days that said, here be dragons. Nobody really knew, it, at least in terms of TV, we had no idea what the show was. And in terms of geography, to your point, mo most people don't know. It's, it's not really just off the coast, right? I mean, like the Aleutian chain starts, you know, and then curves down like a giant tail, it goes for about 1,800 miles all the way toward Japan. And Dutch Harbor's in the middle of it, about seven, 800 miles out of Anchorage. And so, you know, you fly from San Francisco to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage, and then you get on a woefully inadequate uh, device with a, <laughs> an insane pilot who somehow lands you in Dutch Harbor. It's, yeah, one of it, the scariest it, airports you can land at. Dude, it's unbelievable. The crosswinds coming into Dutch, the number of flights that are aboarded. It's so bad that when you check out of the Grand Aleutian Hotel, uh, you you actually don't check out until your plane is up in the air because so many <laughs> flights don't get off the ground. They're just like, no, wow. never mind. Anyhow, so this would have been uh, 2002. I was trying to sell dirty jobs to Discovery. They weren't having it. They just, I'd, I'd shot the pilot on my own and they, they thought it was a, they liked it. But it, you know, I mean, I'm, it's artificial insemination. It's me crawling through sewers. The whole thing looked like a German porno. And they were yeah. like, ah, this is, you know, this is not really our brand. And at the time, it wasn't. But they said, um, what do you think of this? And they, and they showed me some footage of a, of a little boat in big water and said, this is crab fishing up in the Bering Sea. And I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. Yeah. And they said, you want to go up and check it out? And, and, and seriously, that's what they said. Do you want to go up and check it out? They didn't know what it was. That was all it. They, wow. All they had seen was a pilot that a guy I know called Tom Beers put together called Deadliest Season. And it was basically just, just a fly-on-the-wall look at crab fishing at its most extreme. Right. So I went up and basically did an impersonation uh, part Stone Phillips, right? Mm -hmm. Part Hosty, yeah, and part Greenhorn, um, because I didn't know if it was going to be a docu series, a documentary, a reality show. Because uh, to your point, there were none, so yeah. we didn't know what what that yeah, would. What look do you or, What do you even call like. it at that point? You're like, is this we a docu drama? Yeah, you don't even know. We don't know. I'll tell you. Sidebar. Uh, this is how crazy it was. They. They knew the only reality that was on TV at the time, Jesse James was building motorcycles. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and Survivor was on the air. That's right. And Survivor yeah. was a competition show. Right. So, so the geniuses at the network back in the day were like, okay, so we need to give a prize to the captain that gets the most crab. 
So I was authorized to give a $250,000 prize to wow. the crab boat that got the most crab. And that's, that's all I really knew. When yeah. I got up there, holy crap, man. The Coast Guard was pissed off. The community was pissed off. The production company, you know, had identified six boats they wanted to put cameras on. But but what people don't understand who watch that show, they don't understand that at the time anyway, those six boats, there are 150 boats in the fleet. Yeah. We were only chronicling six, yeah. right? And so you can imagine the internal drama, the competition on the ground. I mean, these men are already among the most competitive creatures on the earth. Totally. And willing to kill themselves to go out every day already. You you introduce that money, it becomes a... Gas a, on a know, fire. Yeah, yeah. It, it blows my mind. It's gas on a fire. And look, the Admiral of the Coast Guard pulled me aside and said, um, you know, are you out of your freaking mind? You know, what are you guys doing? Now, I, I didn't have any supervision. I didn't have yeah. a network there. I, there was a production company there, but... Nobody knew who was really in charge. Nobody mm, know what yeah. the sh knew what the show really was. So I started making really some executive decisions. It just wasn't my place to make. It was like taking the lava out of the thing, Charles, right? It's like, <laughs> ah, what's in here? Let's see what happens. Yeah. So I said, all right, never mind. Screw the money. Let's just put the boats out in the water and let's put the cameras on the boats and I'll tag along uh -huh. and I'll make friends with the captains and I'll become the host of this thing. So... What happened in a nutshell was we filmed everything. We stayed up there for, uh, I was up there for three weeks. Then I came back home for Christmas and then I went back for another three weeks. Wow. Right in the middle of winter. I didn't even, I didn't even, that didn't even dawn on me that you were there peak winter oh, season. Well, here's, here's what else people didn't know. They, they gave me an actuarial chart going up there. And, and they told me, said, look, this is a dangerous job, according to everybody we talked to. Right. Well, I thought they were screwing with me because, because here, here's what the chart said. There were three categories. Category one was injury rate. Category two was catastrophic injury rate. And category three was mortality. Wow. So the first category, what percentage would you guess? <laughs> what, what percentage of injuries occur throughout the fleet in any given season. Take a guess. It's gotta be like 50% of the, of the people on the boats get injured, I think, right? Or more. Something like that. And yeah. think down here stateside, if you're, a, if you're a company or an industry and you have a 10% injury rate, you're, you're yeah. locked, you're shut down. You, you, you can't stay in business. Right. So the, the injury rate for a crabber in the crab fleet in 2002, who worked a full six-week season, was 100%. Holy Wow. Oh I shit God. you not. If you what? worked a full season on a crab boat in 2002, you were going to get hurt. You were going to break your little finger. You were going to uh, get a couple stitches in your forehead. You were going to sprain your ankle, right? Something like that. Not a deal breaker, but just you were going to get jacked up, and it was going to yeah, be annoying, yeah. and, and, and th that's just the way it is. Category two, catastrophic injury rate. Crab pot slides on the icy deck, crushes yeah. your pelvis, right? <laughs> you get an aneurysm. You, yeah. you, you got to get airlifted off, like something, that's, that, that something takes real. you out of the sketch. Yeah. yeah. If you can get airlifted off. If you can, 9%. Yeah. 9%. So almost one in 10 Whoa. Are going to get seriously hurt. Category three, mortality rate, wasn't even a percentage. It was simply mm. one a week. Oh, wow. That's Every so week crazy. for six yeah. weeks, statistically speaking, one person is going to die fishing for crab on the Bering Sea. That's wow. what I read on Penair, the flight from <laughs> the the flight from Anchorage. To Dutch, to Dutch. And, yeah. and honestly, I just thought they were screwing with me because there's no way this, this can't possibly be real. To answer yeah. your question, Chris, when I left after being up there for six weeks, everybody I knew got hurt, including me. One in ten got jacked up badly, yeah. and and six men died. Oh, wow. That actuarial Jeez. table was a prophecy. 
Mm-hmm. It it couldn't have been more accurate. Yeah. So I came back with the to the network with all this footage, and I'm in all of it. I'm in a lot of it, you know. And there's but there's plenty I'm I'm not in too. We 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 had a ton of stuff to pour through, but we had to decide what in the hell is this because it's something, it's something, but is it a documentary? Is it hosted? Blah blah blah. So, answer your question. They ordered dirty jobs based on a lot of what they saw on those boats, but they knew that they couldn't have me hosting two shows. So, you know, they said, pick one. When in doubt, pick the one with your name in the title. But they, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but they let me stick around and uh, narrate Deadliest Catch, and we just are going into season 19. Yeah, it's, it's unreal. I think it's the lo- one of the longest running. I mean, if, if not the second or the first longest running, you know, reality TV shows of, of all time, which is incredible, really incredible. And Mike, I have a question about, you know, you, you come out of that first foray in, into, into Deadliest Catch and you have all this just incredible footage, right? You're meeting these people who are extraordinary. You're, you're experiencing this line of work that's hard to even fathom, even for somebody, you know, on the docks looking at it, you know, square in the face. What, what do you hope, you know, the audience takes away from this footage, from this experience, from this, this window into this, into this world? I have to check myself because what I, what I want to tell you is, is the truth, but it's not the first truth. The first truth, and the most important thing to remember, is I want you to be entertained. I want you to be on the edge of your seat. From time to time, I want you to hear the sound of your own sphincter slamming shut, (laughs) right? Um, Same thing with Dirty Jobs. I want you to laugh, and Mm -hmm. I want you to go, God, you got to be kidding me. Thank God this isn't scratch and sniff. Man, I would never do that, you know? Like, I want you to go along for the ride and enjoy all of it for the entertainment proposition that it is. But, but um, there's a flip side to that coin. You know, when you watch Deadliest Catch, I want you to also, ideally, I, I want you to think to yourself, Jesus, you know what? You can't script the Bering Sea. You can't fake that. Reality has become a cesspool of fakery and choreographed nonsense. And look, Deadliest Catch too. It's you have to find storylines. You have to do lots of things as producers to keep the thing on its feet. But the reason it's still on the air is because you can't script the Bering Sea. And you know that every so often, you know, a rogue wave is going to come along and take somebody out of the sketch permanently. And that that's horrifying, but it's also a reminder that there's a price to pay for a lot of different jobs that are out there. And you can't arbitrage the risk or the danger out of the work. It's real. It is what it is. And that's, and that's important. The reality nonfiction world is full of hosts. And, and, and I was one of them for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I was baptized in a river of crap here in San Francisco <laughs> for episode one of Dirty Jobs. And, and I learned Honestly, like the big, big moment was I, I'm an okay host, maybe, maybe even a, a good one, but I'm a better guest. And, yeah. you know, if you can get out of your own way and let the person you're with be the expert, if you can just remember, you know, two ears, one mouth, I'm a guest in your sewer. I'm a guest in your world, right? And so, you know, when I think of it in those terms, it's like, then it gets easy. Then mm. I don't have to be a great crab fisherman or a totally. great sewer inspector. All I have to do is try. And, you know, in that world, yeah, you know, you, that's how you stay on the air for 20 years. Well, manage you kinda, expectations. You kind of held space for these people, which is kind of a new age-ish term. But I, I think that that's, that's the only way I can really describe it is like you created a great space a comfortable space for them to exist. And, and it was obvious that you were their heroes, which, you know, as a young kid who grew up and was like, well, I want to do anything other than what my dad does for a living. And I eventually ended up doing something very different. It was cool to have a show dedicated to kind of like 
making those people heroes, which was really, which was awesome and really rad. Well, thanks, man. Getting people connected or perhaps reconnected with the fundamental things in life, where your food comes from, where your energy comes from, where your clothes come from, those things are primal. And if you do it right, and, you know, again, I, I don't want to get out of my lane or overreach, but it comes back to my foundation, too. When you walk in a room and flick the switch and the light comes on, that's a goddamn miracle. Yeah. And if you're, not, if you're not gobsmacked by that, well, then yeah. I'm, I'm doing something wrong. You know, when you flush the toilet and watch the crap go away, it's a goddamn miracle. Yeah. To have a total disconnect to the fact that there is a, a journeyman somewhere up there who, who fixed your power lines when the tree came down and you're just you just expect these things to happen i mean there, there are expectations that come with living in you know um, a city like we do modern society but the disconnectedness and is a is a real challenge and i i have to remind myself of that every day i mean i think we all do um but i i really appreciate what you're saying and i just to follow up with that do you, do you have a thought on how that disconnectedness has become so um, so rampant in the last, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, it's what I meant earlier when I said, you know, the honest answer to your question, there's a chronology to it. The first role is to entertain. You can't be in business, at least not in my business. You can't be on television and have your primary purpose to be to lecture or scold or sermonize, you know, save that for Sunday mornings right? Or for TED Talks. That's not why people watch television. So you have to be cool with job one, which is give them something to look at and say, holy crap, look at that. Then if you're lucky, you get permission to tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, isn't it kind of interesting? Look at all the opportunities that are available in this industry, right? So so that's what I started doing back in 2008 when Dirty Jobs was really at the well, we were the number one show on on cable that year, I think. And, you know, a lot of people like Charles were wandering into their dens going, oh, my God, there's this guy doing his thing. And right. And so I, you know, you ask earlier, Chris, do I feel some sort of burden? Well, no. But when I realized how many people were watching the show and when I realized how many fathers and sons were watching it together and mothers and daughters, too, had a weirdly wide demo. Up huge. When I, yeah. When I realized that, I thought, huh, that's something to think about. And then when our country started to go into a recession, as we are now, I think, if we're allowed to say that, back in 2009, <laughs> that's when things got really sporty because now all of a sudden everybody's talking about the unemployment rate and the you know 10 million people who are out of jobs. But everywhere I went on dirty jobs, I'm seeing help wanted signs. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, what's what's going on in the country? You know, why is it so hard to hire in, in these vocations? And why are so many people not trained or educated or skilled for the work that does exist? And that's what started MicroWorks. And in 2008, it was a PR campaign for a couple million good jobs that existed, but that nobody seemed to want. And... Um, and I did that for a few years. I went to Congress, right? I, I built a trade resource center. And I started working with a lot of companies on their recruiting messages, which quite frankly, suck. I mean, weren't great. Most, yeah. 10% of all advertising works. You just don't know which 10. <laughs> yeah. So that means 90% of what you do blows, right? And so it's the same thing with recruiting. So I, I spent a lot of time in that space trying to help people make a more persuasive case for the opportunities that that existed. And then that changed um, because, again, I don't want to be the lecturer. I don't want to be, you know, the the rich old white guy telling people to get a freaking job. No, no yeah. one wants to hear that. So I started raising money and giving it away. We gave away about a million bucks a year every year in work ethic scholarships. And th- these are scholarships for people who do not want to go to a four-year school, but instead are willing to learn a trade, right? Yeah, that was me, uh, yeah. Any trade, mm-hmm. I, yeah. welding, steam fitting, pipe fitting, electric, like my granddad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, plumbing, I mean, it's just down the list. And so today, uh, we've been at it 15 years. 
started the foundation on uh, Labor Day in in 2008, and um, and we're still at it. We just gave away two million bucks, and I just talked to a, a kid who I gave uh, it was like six thousand bucks for a welding certificate. It was nothing, but he qualified. He jumped through all the hoops. It's a hard worker. Showed up early, stayed late, took a bite of the crap sandwich when it was his turn. He didn't care. He just worked. This guy today tells me, okay, so. He got his welding thing, started doing it, went up through the TIG and the MIG welding, and then he started underwater welding. So then he started traveling around the world. He's he's banking $150,000, $250,000 a year wow. in tax-free countries, right, all, all around the world. Comes home, saved his money, gets his electric uh, certification, hires a couple of buddies, buys a couple of vans. Now he's got two plumbers, two electricians, heating, air conditioning. He's got 12 people working for him, four vans, got a mechanical contracting business that's doing between three and a half and $4 million a year. Incredible. That starts with a $6,000 welding certificate. It's also the belief and the validation from somebody that like, hey, you're on the right track and I want to support you. I think that that sometimes is overlooked. Yeah, man. I mean, you you kind of laid the pipe in the first couple of minutes of this, but that's yeah. that's really what it comes <laughs> back around to. You know? I love laying pipe, you know? Uh, you said it exactly right. You said back to scouting. Yeah. What was the mm. big skill? What was the big muscle it taught you? How to finish something. Right. The thing with dirty jobs, the thing with the skilled trades, you know, if you're a welder, I don't know what you're going to make I don't know where you're going to work, and there's a long list of other things I don't know about you. But I know this. I know that you always know how you're doing. All you have to do is look down at the work in front of you, and you know. Mm. You get that kind of feedback, and when you finish a seam, when you finish a weld, when you finish what whatever the project is, that triggers, in me anyway, a shot of dopamine, yeah. it, right? It's like that yeah. is pleasurable. Well, and Mike, you've you've talked to so many people from so many walks of life, from so many backgrounds. Looking back on these thousands and thousands of conversations, I'd love to hear if you have any insights into the balance of happiness and pursuit of of occupation, of how do we spend our time? Because yeah. people talk about dream jobs, and then you talk about jobs that are recognized because there's an opportunity. But where does happiness and, and opportunity and, and, and value, where do those things kind of coalesce? And are there any learnings you can, you can look back on and share with us? Well, sure. I mean, look, the honest answer is a 300-page book I can't get around to finishing called Lessons from the Dirt, which I promised a publisher I'd write 10 years ago, but I just haven't had time. But all those things are, are dots on a table, right? Job satisfaction, happiness, skill, money balance, challenges, all, all these things. Um, and, and they all matter. What I think is interesting is the chronology, right? What, what do we tell our kids? What do we tell each other? What are the stories we tell about how we get to a place that we would call happiness? Or how do we get to a level of job satisfaction that the average person would look at and go, okay, that that looks like that looks like a plan for me, and and I think what we do basically is 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 wrongheaded, and and I think it's wrongheaded because it's fundamentally flawed, but it's also served up as cookie cutter advice for everyone. And this is what we tell them: we say, look, you want to be happy on your job. Here's what you do: you sit down, and you really, really think. Think really hard about what you want to do. Be honest with yourself, all right? You know, be honest, but but really give it careful thought and then decide. Now, let's go out and make it happen. Borrow the money, if you need to borrow money, to go to the school, if you need to go to the school, to get the certificate in order to let you become qualified to get the next certificate. And if you need to borrow money to get that certificate, then borrow the money. We'll make the money available for you, Okay. And then when you finally get a shot, when you finally get all your ducks in a row, start interviewing. 
you know, and as you interview, maybe you'll get hired, maybe you won't, but keep at it. Never quit. Never quit. Keep, keep going. Remember what it is that is going to make you happy and so forth and so on. And so you finally wind up with a doctor who always wanted to be a doctor, who studied for 15 years and now has $300,000 a year in medical insurance and he has a staff. You're not going to make money for another 10 years and he's working 15 hours a day and my God, he's still, somehow he's just still not quite happy. So it's like the permission that we give ourselves is very narrow. Like we have to do all these things before we let ourselves go, okay, that was satisfying. Again, to your point, Chris, you finish a task, you can take a lot of satisfaction and happiness in that, right then, in that moment. The lesson from Dirty Jobs is it's all backwards. If you want to be happy, here's what you do. Don't worry about what makes you happy. You can't trust that. You're too young and too stupid to know. No offense, but you can't trust that. What do you know? I thought I'd be happy if I could follow in my grandfather's footsteps. As it turns out, I needed a totally different toolbox. I didn't know that, but I learned it along the way. And along the way, I had some laughs. I sang in the opera. I met a lot of girls. I took the lava out of a lamp, right? I learned a bunch of crap along the way. But on dirty jobs, it's even more extreme than that. If you want to be happy in your work, here's what you do. You look around and you see where everybody's going and you go the other direction. You take the reverse commute. You find an opportunity that's open, a job that nobody else wants to do. And then you learn how to do it. You study. You show up early. You stay late. You eat the poop sandwich when it's your turn. And please don't tell me this doesn't make you happy or line up with your wish fulfillments. No one cares. Just do it. Get good at it. Then get paid for it. Then figure out a way to love it. Honestly, Charles, I don't think it's any different than, than being happy in your marriage, being happy in your love life. I mean, if you, if you start your search for a job with the idea that there's a dream job out there, and you start your search for a mate with the idea that there's your soulmate somewhere out there, and all you have to do is find him or her, and then you'll be happy. Then you'll hear trumpets in the background, and then the, everything will fall into place. If you do it like that, then your happiness relies on finding a needle in a haystack. If you do it the other way, your happiness will follow, right? And so, yeah, just a long way of saying shortcuts lead to long delays, and the only kind of gratification worth having is the kind that's delayed. Well, Mike, thank you. You've not only filled uh, so many of my my young years with laughter and sparked curiosity and joy, but just getting a chance to sit down and and hear you share your wisdom with us and and tell some of the stories that you know brought you to where you are has just been absolutely fascinating. And I wish we had three more hours. Yeah, because this is this was a, a podcast where before uh, before it started, I was thinking. Gosh, what I would do for <laughs> yeah, a real proper sit down and well, a little bit is. more time. Let's the, yeah. you know we we should do it in person over some yeah. some proper lubricants. And, yeah, um, <laughs> that's where the conversation Count goes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, thank you. Anytime, guys. Appreciate it. Dude, Mike Rowe. That guy is just a toolbox of information. <laughs> I mean, just hearing his voice when it all started and seeing his face was like surreal. I mean, where do we even start? He's been, I think, a staple in so many people's homes for 20 plus years. And, you know, opening our eyes to a world that so many of us knew existed, but had no idea of what it really was about. Totally. Honestly, that was more than I expected. You know, he uh, he has such a, a wealth of knowledge, but not somebody where like, you know, he's seen it all, done it all, and, and it's just kind of sitting in the brain somewhere. Like he's been able to articulate it, bring it to the forefront, almost uh, synthesize it for the masses. Totally. And I mean, I think one of the things that I really admire about, about him is that he's been able to quietly work in the background, uplifting all of these people. He's not sitting there saying, hey, 
look at this guy crab fishing or look at this plumber. We need to respect them. He's just sitting there with a spotlight saying, I'm going to be here and I'm going to put this light on these people and let you realize how amazing they are and how essential they are and how brave and skilled and just tough they are. And I I think that's just such a a, a humble approach. I I don't think he even ever really acknowledged or recognized in the beginning how much of an impact his work would have on the tradesmen of America and and just overall over globally right like he made it cool again in many ways to kind of celebrate the the people that you know have a chance to do this kind of work and work that often isn't celebrated you know again I as I shared in the podcast like coming from that type of family I felt proud you know to like be digging ditches with my dad and I just think it's a real rarity, you know, to find somebody who kind of embodies that. And then not only that as a, as a host, which he hates that word, but to kind of take it a step further, create a foundation. Like I really loved his perspective. Well, and I think one of the things that surprised me was, you know, really digging into him as a person, right? We often associate him with, with the work, with the jobs, with the show, with the people he's like the mentee or the apprentice for, but I'm so inspired by his appetite, his bravery on, a, on his own path, mm. his, his ability to accept that these twists and turns are inevitable and that you can just walk into that bar and see something on the TV and say, I'm going to go for that. Yeah, you know, what totally. the heck? I have nothing to lose. And it seems like so much of his career has kind of been a byproduct of that. Let's just send it and see what happens, you know, mentality. I'm so grateful we got a chance to chat with him and, 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 Oddly enough, both of our kind of childhood heroes. And yeah, I feel like we both gleaned a lot of information from that. Mike's a legend. And I mean, just his final sentiment on happiness and, and mm-hmm. how we should think about that. I mean, that 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 was magic. The Traverse is a Huckberry production in collaboration with Chris Burkhardt, Charles Post, and Duct Tape, then Beer. From Huckberry, Andy Forch, Richard Greiner, and Ben O'Mara, our executive producers... Mike Idell and John Desabry are senior producers. Matt Marr, Benjamin Rawls, Aaron Para, and Willis Smith provided additional production help. From Duct Tape Then Beer, Becca Cahal and Fitz Cahal are executive producers. Evan Phillips is the senior producer. Music by Greg Jong and Graham Barton. Until next time, see you out there. <laughs>